All right. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Last week, um, uh, by the way, there's a, just for those of you who are curious, if you were here last Sunday, you know that the clock was two hours slow and I had a whole bunch of time to preach. And uh, somebody called Dan this week and said, get that man a new clock. <laughs> so, so just to encourage your heart, there's a new clock down here. Not that it'll matter, but it's here for you uh, to look at. This morning, I want to, it's, uh, it may not be, it may be a little more theological, and it may be a little more informational uh, than, it, than it is sermonic, okay? But I want to uh, lay some things out for you that we need to talk about over these next few weeks as we consider that subject we introduce. Jesus Christ coming soon. It might, it could be well said, Jesus Christ coming soon to a theater near you. I always get a kick out of these movie trailers. They'll show this little bit of a clip and they'll say coming and they'll give you the date or in theaters on such and such a time. Well, you know, the Bible says that Jesus is coming soon and he's going to come to a theater near us. As a matter of fact, uh, the Bible teaches that the world is, the, the heavens are his theater. Listen, Jesus said, Matthew twenty four thirty. he said, at that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He's closer to coming back today than he's ever been He really is coming soon, and he will come in a theater, literally, for everyone to see. And there's going to be some parts to that. And so this morning, I want us to think about, as we kind of get begin to get into some of the the, uh, eschatological, I love to hear that word, eschatology is the study, I guess my definition would be the study of the end time, or the study of things to come. But as we think about that, it, it kind of brings up a few questions. And first of all, that I, w- I was kind of thinking about this, and where do you start when it comes to the return of Jesus? I mean, where, where do we need to, to get into this thing at? I, I mean, how do we know if he is coming? And then if he is coming, what should you and I be looking for? Well, I just want to tell you, there's no question that he's coming. The Bible, man, it is so clear. It is so specific that we know he's coming. If you're a student of the Bible, if you believe the Bible, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you, listen, it is plain as day that he's coming. Matter of fact, someone has, and I don't know who did the study, but I heard this week, I've, I've listened to so many, uh, I've listened to two or three different sermons, I've read a two, uh, couple of books, just uh, filling my little small brain with all this stuff. But, but they tell me that, that nearly a fourth, nearly a fourth of the scripture is somewhat eschatological, that it has something to do. Uh, with, with the things to come. And so the Bible is very clear. He is going to come again. There's no doubt about it. Now, whether you believe that or not, it really doesn't matter. I mean, it matters 
But it doesn't matter from the standpoint. Whether I believe he's coming or not doesn't change the fact that he will appear a second time apart from sin unto salvation. I mean, the Bible just says it's going to happen. And so, so we know that he's going to come. But another question is, if we know he's going to come, then, then when's it going to be? I mean, when is it going to be? And then will he come or could it be? Soon and and then we got to ask. Well, how will I know, or how do I know? What is it that we should be looking for? What are what are the things uh, that we should look for? And so we got all these questions, and you could come up with a, a hundred other questions in mind regarding the return of Jesus Christ. But what I want to do is I want to kind of lay this thing out. We're going to look at a couple verses out of First Thessalonians, and then I'm just going to lay some things out that are kind of informational and theological and and uh, we'll just go from there okay why don't we read first thessalonians and rather than read the whole first chapter uh let's just read i'm kind of picking up in in verse nine uh paul's just kind of said hey you you know i thank the lord for your faith and what god's doing in your life but listen there in verse 9. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 8 because it will make a little more sense. It says, Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how, <laughs> excuse me, how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And listen to this statement. And to wait for his son from heaven. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. May we pray? Father, thank you so much that Jesus is going to rescue his people from the coming wrath. Thank you that we've been called as believers, those of us who are believers, those of us who have trusted Christ, those of us who follow Jesus have been called to turn to you and away from the idols of the world and to wait, to wait for your Son from heaven, whom you raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who's going to rescue us from the coming wrath. Father, I pray this morning that you'd begin to open up our hearts and our minds to see what we need to be looking for. But even more than that, God, that we might be motivated to do what we need to do in light of the fact of what you're one day going to do. So, God, come and meet with us and speak to us and open. God, I just pray that you'd open the eyes of our heart this morning. That As we download all this information and some theology, that it'll be clear. And, God, for those in the auditorium, I know there's men and women and some boys and girls here this morning that have not yet trusted Jesus Christ. And they're not really sure about this whole gospel thing. And they're, they're obviously not sure or certain that Jesus is coming again. God, I ask you, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak into their hearts today. And they would realize today that Jesus really is coming. And they need to be ready for him. So, God, would you come? May your spirit minister to our hearts. May your spirit speak into our lives this morning. And when he does, we'll give you the glory and the honor and the praise for it all. For it's in Jesus' awesome name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, last Sunday we concluded, well, we concluded with a video, but kind of before we set that up, we talked about 
some of the purposes that we should be living for in light of his coming. Now, if you're here, I hope you remember, but, but when we really believe that Jesus is coming again, it, it affects our worship of the king. When we really believe that Jesus is coming again, it affects our gathering together to worship the king. Now, um, obviously, if you look around, everybody didn't quite get the message, you know, from last week that, that it should affect our worship of the king. And so, uh, so when we believe Jesus is coming, it, it should alter how we do business. Secondly, we talked about how it should affect our work in the kingdom. When you really believe, when we really, really believe that he's coming again, we are motivated to invest and utilize our life for the glory and majesty of God. And then thirdly, we talked about how we need to, uh, we need to wait for him. And while we're waiting, the grace of God, based on Titus 2, uh, 11 through 13, the grace of God should be teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldliness and to live a life of distinction and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so we, we kind of, that's kind of where we left off that, that the word of God should, should be teaching us to do that. And, and if we really believe he's coming, that that should be the case. Now, having said all that, and, and this, I don't have this verse for you, but, but in Matthew 25 verse 13, Jesus, you remember the, remember the parable of the, of the ten virgins? Do you remember Jesus gave this parable and he said there were ten virgins and five of them were ready? And they trimmed, they brought all, and they brought extra, and they had their lamps trimmed, and, and five of them weren't ready. And then uh, it was a long time before the, the bridegroom came, and uh, five of them's lamps burn out. You remember the story? And uh, as soon as their lamp burned out, they had to go buy more oil, because uh, the other ones weren't giving up their oil, because they were ready. And when they went to buy oil, the bridegroom came, and the bridal chamber was open. The five went in. The ones who were ready went in. And the five who had gone away to buy all, when they came back, the bridegroom was in the bride, in, in the chamber or in, in wherever, in the mansion, if you will. The five that were ready were in with him. And they knocked on the door and they tried to get in, but they couldn't get in. And Jesus concluded that, he concluded that story or that parable. And this is the verse. This is what he said. He said, watch therefore. He said, some were ready and some were not. He said, watch Therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So let me say this. We should be worshiping differently in light of his coming. We should be working differently in light of his coming. We should be waiting differently in light of his coming. But oh, church, listen. We should be watching for his coming. We need to be looking so that we're not caught with no oil in our lamp. And so I want to spend the next few minutes talking about what are some things that we need to be looking for. And we'll come back uh, as time permits. We'll come back and talk about this watching in just a few minutes. But let's just think about, before we even get to our text, I want you to think with me about this whole second coming, the return of Christ. And I'm, I'm talking about in a general term. I'm not talking about the actual second coming. I'm not talking about the specific taking out of the church. But just as a general term, the, the end times. 
no matter what your theological position, and I'm going to talk about uh, probably seven, and I'm going to talk about the three major ones here in just a minute. But no matter what your position about what things are to come, there are about six elements, maybe seven, depending on how you break them down. But there are about six elements that you have to deal with that the Bible talks about. Quite there's about six elements that everybody, no matter what your theological position is, you got to be able to, to come to grips with these, these things because the Bible says they're going to happen. Let me tell you quickly what they are. We'll come back in a moment. We'll put them in order and uh, based on our theological position. Let me just tell you, first of all, you, you got to deal with the Antichrist in a great tribulation. You, you, you're, you're, your end time theology has to be able to deal with the element of the great tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist. Okay, there's no way around it. The bulk of Revelation deals with this period. Also, you got to deal with the rapture. Uh, now, I know some people say, well, you know, but Pastor, the, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Okay, you're right, because rapture is Latin. But there is a word in the Bible called the harpazo, the snatching out or the snatching away or the taking out of the church. And the Bible is very clear about that. We'll look at it in a, look, in a few minutes and then we'll deal with it more explicitly next week. But your, your end time prophecy has to deal with the tribulation. It has to deal with the rapture. It has to deal with a final battle or the battle of Armageddon, if you choose to call it that, which I think is the appropriate uh, definition, and the second coming of Christ. These two things are going to happen. They're going to kind of be connected to one another. But your end time theology has got to deal with that element. There is a second coming. There is a final great battle uh, where all the nations are gathered together. And then the fourth element that, that your theology, that our theology has to have, is this thousand year reign of Christ. Now that, we're going to come back and spend a few minutes on that in just a moment because that, what you believe about the millennium paves the way for, for your chronological belief about what, what and how this thing's going to happen. Uh, so that's the fourth element, the, the thousand year reign or the millennial reign of Christ. The fifth element that you have to deal with is you have to deal with a great white throne judgment, a final judgment where all the people that have ever been born are raised and they're, they're before the great white throne of God and they stand in judgment where God separates uh, his children uh, from those who do not know him. Uh, and that's, uh, again, in, in the book of Revelation. And then the sixth element of your theology, theology has to deal with, with the final rest or eternity. And so... The scripture talks about those things in different ways and in different places. And so you got to be able, you got to have an understanding of those to rightly understand uh, end time theology. And so now the key to, the key to um, building your belief system or your theology is based on the, uh, your millennial position. Now, I know some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. So let me just try to, let me take a few minutes and try to explain this and try to help you understand this. In, in evangelical circles over the two centuries since Jesus came, there are different beliefs about when the thousand year reign is going to take place. In fact, some of them kind of explain it away. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to explain, I'm going to, I'm going to mention all seven positions. 
I'm going to explain the three major ones in some detail. And I'm going to tell you why I believe one is the most biblically accurate. And, and then you're going to have to decide, okay, which one do you believe in, okay? Now, again, I told you this is going to be more informational and theological for a little bit. So you got to stay with me. I wish I had slides for some of this. I don't have slides. But let me just, let me just quickly introduce to you uh, those, those millennial positions. I'll explain the first three in detail, and I'll tell you what the other, other four are uh, just for your way of information. First of all is the, the premillennial view of the thousand year reign. Now the premillennial view, uh, well let me just read Ryrie, I got a definition here so at, at the risk of, of uh, uh, being a little tedious, let me just read it. In general the premillennial system may be characterized as follows. Premillennialists believe that theirs is the historic faith of the church holding to a literal interpretation of the scriptures. They believe that the promises that God made to Abraham and David are unconditional and have had or will have a literal fulfillment. That's important, and you'll see why in a minute. In no sense have these promises made to Israel been abrogated or fulfilled by the church, which is a distinct body in this age, having promises and a destiny of different from Israel. At the close of this age, premillennialists believe that Christ will return for his church, meeting her in the air. That's the rapture. Um, And which events called the rapture of the translation will usher in a seven-year period of tribulation on the earth. And after this, the Lord will return to earth. This is the second coming of Christ. He will establish his kingdom on earth for 1,000 years, which, during which time the promises that God made in the Old Testament to Israel will be fulfilled. Okay? So the premillennial view basically believes that, that the church is going to be taken out. There's going to be a tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus is going to come with his saints. There's going to be a final battle. And then Jesus will reign on the throne of David for a thousand years over the nation of Israel. Okay? That's, in a nutshell, is the premillennial view. Now, the second view that I want to talk about is called the postmillennial view. And let me just read a definition of it, then I'll give you a couple of the things about it. Lorraine Bettner, a more contemporary or somewhat contemporary post-millennial theologian, defines post-millennialism this way. It's that view of last things which holds that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through preaching the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit, and that the world eventually will be Christianized and that the return of Christ will will occur at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace, commonly called the millennium. It should be added that on post-millennial principles, the second coming of Christ will be followed immediately by the general resurrection and the general judgment and introduction into heaven and hell in their fulfillment. Now, let me just tell you, there's a couple problems with post-millennialism. Post-millennials believe inherently that the world is going to get better and better and better. And when the church... And Christianity becomes good enough, it's going to usher in the second coming of Christ, and that'll be, and then he'll judge the world and we go out into eternity. Now, there's a couple problems with this. First of all, the problem with this is they believe the church has replaced Israel. And that means the Old Testament promises to Israel are not going to be fulfilled in a literal thousand year millennial reign. 
that uh, the Old Testament predicted and Jesus talked about. Uh, second problem with postmillennialism is uh, that they believe things are going to get better and better and better, and there's never going to be a tribulation period. Now, I'm 49 years old, and I don't know how old you are, and I don't know how much you've been paying attention, but in my 49 years, things have not been getting, from a political, social, moral, spiritual, things have not been getting better and better and better and better. Right? Okay? So if that's true, then something has got to drastically change. Now, another issue with that is if there's no tribulation then why is there Revelation 6 through 19? So that's kind of an issue of postmillennialism. The third major position is called amillennialism. Amillennialism. Now, you put a pre, the prefix ah in front of anything, it means there's really not one. Okay? So here's their position. J.G. Voss has defined it this way. Amillennialism is that view of last things which holds that the Bible does not predict the millennium. Or period of worldwide peace and righteousness on this earth. Amillennialism teaches there will be a parallel and contemporaneous development of good and evil. God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom in this world. Which will continue until the second coming of Christ. At the second coming of Christ, the resurrection and judgment will take place. Followed by the eternal order of things, etc., etc. Now there's a couple problems with amillennialism. Uh, number one is they believe that revelation is allegory. It cannot be interpreted literally. Okay. Number two, they believe that the, again, the church has replaced Israel and they believe that the literal promises that God made to Israel are never going to be fulfilled. That Israel broke the covenant and God said, sorry about it, Israel. Uh, I'm going to raise up a church. They're going to take your place. And none of those things are ever going to be fulfilled. And so they believe that you can't interpret uh, the Old Testament uh, prophecies literally. They believe you cannot interpret Revelation and other New Testament passages literally. And so that's the amillennial view. So we got premillennialism, uh, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Now, there's, let me just quickly give you a couple others. There's dispensationalism, which we won't go into this morning. Um, then, uh, then fifth, there is historic premillennialism. And historic premillennialism believes that, that the church is going to go all the way through the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, God's going to take the church out. And at the same time, when the church goes up, then we come right back down with Jesus for the second coming. Now, um, there's a couple issues with that that I think biblically, uh, let me just tell you the, the, a really hard issue. There's, there's two really difficult issues. Number one is, uh, if you believe that, you believe that the tribulation is to purify the bride of Christ. Okay? And if you believe that the tribulation period is to purify the bride of Christ, then what you're really saying is that when Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, he couldn't purify his bride. And that in order to purify us, God's going to keep us here and have us go through this wrath to purify us. So I th theologically, that is a major issue 
Because I don't know about you, but when Jesus came into my heart, I'm believing not only did Jesus forgive everything that I've already done, but Jesus has already forgiven everything uh, that I'm going to do. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, and this is not in, this, you can write this in your notes, but in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 21, the Bible says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the problem with post-tribulation premillennialism is that we believe that we that we need to go through the 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 tribulation to be purified for Christ and that nullifies the power of the blood of Jesus as it works in your life. So that's a major issue. Second problem is that Jesus said he's coming like a thief in the night, right? You know that? He's coming like a thief. All right. If you believe in in the tribulation as a seven-year period, as, as we'll look at in a couple of weeks as Scripture teaches, if Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, if he's coming post-tribulation, I'm an Aggie, but I can count seven years. I mean, if the Antichrist shows up here and every, and he's great for three and a half years and then he turns on a dime and starts persecuting the world here at three and a half years... I can count three and a half more years. Jesus is not going to come after, come like a thief if we can know exactly when he's going to come. So there's kind of an issue with post-tribulationism. Then there's a, the fifth view is, is, um, we'll call it a pre-wrath rapture. And they believe the church is going to, they believe that the church will stay here for a while during the tribulation, but somewhere between the middle of the tribulation and maybe Revelation 8 or, or a little further along that God's going to come and take the church out. Uh, a few people have that view. And then a seventh view, there are people that believe uh, that everything in Revelation has already happened. And that's called the, uh, the preterist view. I can't even spell it, so I don't really understand it. But basically, by and large... There's three major views. Premillennialism, which believes that the rapture is going to come, take us away. The tribulation is going to come. And then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes to, to, uh, to judge the earth and, uh, and usher in the millennial reign. Now, by conviction, I am a pre-tribulation, premillennial theologian. I guess. I'm not a theologian, but that, that's what I believe. Okay? Now, you don't have to believe that way. You shouldn't believe that way just because I tell you that I believe that way. But I want to give you some reasons why I believe, and I'm convinced, that the pre-trib, pre-millennial view is the most biblical and therefore is the, the one most preferred. Now, let me say this also. Premillennialism is the only view you can hold and have a chronological view of the end time events. It's the only one that purports itself. So let me give you some reasons why I believe, why I'm premillennial. Okay, why I believe in the pre-tribulation, premillennial or pre-thousand year reign of Christ. Uh, First of all, and and I'm going to try to go through these fairly quickly. But first, the first reason is because. The, the proclamation of the apostolic church or the proclamation or the preaching of the early church, Paul, John, Peter, and the early church were pre-trib, pre-millennial. That's what they were. That is what they were. Ergen Kane, the president of Liberty uh, University and Seminary, tells us, 13 of 27 New Testament books 
explicitly talk about the second coming of Christ. An additional 10 of the 27 New Testament books implicitly talk about the second coming of Christ. If you look at the book, now go back to 1 Thessalonians. Let's read verse 10 of chapter 1. Verse 10 says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Then look in chapter 2. Listen to verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we were glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? And then chapter 3. Look at verse 13. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. He's coming with his holy ones, with his saints, with those who've been redeemed. Then chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, all the way through verse 18. We're not even going to read it now, but he says, we, don't, we do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope, but we believe that Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. We'll cover that next week. Chapter 5, look at verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul believed, Paul believed that Jesus was coming for his church. He was going to take his church and he was going to come back with his church and he was going to appear in the second coming and he was going to judge the world. And the apostolic, listen, the fathers of our faith, the writers of our New Testament, Peter, John, and Paul, believe in a pre-trib, premillennial rapture. Therefore, I believe it's the view to be preferred. But not only is there the preaching of the apostolic fathers of the apostolic church. But let me give you another reason why I believe in the premillennial uh, coming of Christ. And that is because of God's promises to Israel. In Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17 and following, God made a promise to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I've chosen you. I have chosen you and your seed are going to be blessed. Uh, that's called the Abrahamic covenant. In uh, Exodus, and then it's recorded in, actually in Deuteronomy, and even in Ezekiel, God gave the promise, the Mosaic Covenant, that I'm going to bless your people for, forever and ever. And then in Second Samuel chapter 7, God makes this promise uh, to, to David. God says to David, David, your son's going to reign on your throne. And then uh, your, th- this covenant I'm making with you is going to be forever. And then one day, uh, someone is going to reign on your throne, and he's going to rule over Israel forever and ever and ever. So God made this promise uh, to David. And then Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, uh, God proclaims that there's going to be a new covenant with Israel. Okay, time will not allow us to go and look at all that, but there's going to be a new covenant with Israel. And God says that I'm going to honor this covenant. The lion's going to lay down with the lamb. The kids are going to play with the carpet. And so God's made these promises to Israel. Now, the premillennial view is the only view that allows you to take these promises literally. If you don't believe in a a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, you have to believe that what God said in the Old Testament is not going to happen. 
As a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Listen to the promise that the angels made there. Luke chapter, let me just pick up in verse 26, talking about Jesus. It says, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Uh, Mary was greatly troubled. And then verse 30, but the angel of the Lord said to her, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, here's the thing. If you believe, if, if Jesus, listen, Mary literally became pregnant. Mary literally conceived, she literally gave birth to Jesus, he lived a literal life, died a literal death on a cross, was buried in a literal tomb, God literally raised him from the dead, he appeared to, to women, to Peter, to, to all of those, ultimately to 500, and then he ascended into heaven according to Acts chapter 1, and if we literally believe that all of that happened then you have to literally believe the rest of that passage that he's going to reign on David's throne over Israel. And that is going to happen in the, in the thousand years. And so if, if you believe the Bible's true and that the promises are literal, you have to believe there's going to be a thousand year reign where Jesus sits on his throne and he rules over Israel. Just like the Bible says. And, and I just, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to be able to say, well, this is true and this is true and this is true. Wait, the middle of that verse, it's not true anymore. That from here, it's just symbolism. See, I'm not smart enough to do that. And chances are, you're not smart enough to do that. And so we just have, you know, if you believe it's true, then it's true. And so I'm a, I'm a premillennial because of the, the preaching of the, of the apostolic fathers. Because of the, the, the promises that God made to Israel. And give, give you a third reason really quickly. Uh, because of protection from the wrath of God. Go back to, to 1 Thessalonians. Look at, again, look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Us, the church, the coming wrath, the tribulation, who rescues us, the coming wrath. Chapter 5, verse 9, here's what he says. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I just believe the Bible is very clear. That God's going to protect His church from the wrath to come. And then let me give you a fourth reason, and we've got to, we've got to move on. A uh, fourth reason is the permanence of the prophecies in God's Word. We've kind of covered this, but there are as many as 333 distinct promises in the Old Testament alone about the coming deliverer. There's over 300 promises. Now they tell us, that when Jesus came the first time, he fulfilled over 100 of those promises. 
And John MacArthur knows they were fulfilled precisely. They were fulfilled literally. Jesus was born of a virgin, like the Bible says. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just like Micah said. Okay? And, and, and we could go on and on and on. And if, if they were literally fulfilled the first coming, then you got to believe. I mean, you know, here's a, here's a principle of scriptural interpretation. Hermeneutically, if, if they were true about his first coming, then they've got to be true about his second coming. So I'm premillennial. I'm pre-tribulation because the, the fathers, uh, that's what they preached. That's what they believed. Okay? Because the promises God made to Israel. Because of um, the protection that God's promised his church. And because of uh, the permanence of God's promises. Listen, did you know the Bible says... Even if we become faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. God can't deny himself. He's going to keep his promises. Now, I could give you another reason, but I'm not going to do that. I want, I want, to, I want to bring this thing to a conclusion here uh, for today. But let me just say this. Or let me just ask you this question. If Jesus, if, if everybody believes that Jesus is coming... And everybody believes that he's going to, you know, when you trust him, you're going to be saved. Why does it matter? Why does it matter what you believe? Why does it matter if you believe in a, a pre-trib, premillennial rapture? Well, let me just say this way. What you believe about the future determines what you do in the present. You ought to write that down. What you believe about the future determines how you behave in the present. That is a, that is a biblical principle. That principle is just, that is just true. What you believe about the future determines how you behave in the present. Many of you, and, and I'm, and, and, Please don't take me wrong on this. Many of you are here in Wimberley because you worked really hard and you retired and you moved to Wimberley to spend your latter years. Years ago, you believed that if I work hard and save, then one day I can retire and I can enjoy uh, that period of my life. What you believed about the future motivated you to act in the present. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? What we believe about the future determines what we do and how we behave in the present. And so if that's true, then the imminent return, the imminent return means that Jesus could come at any moment, not at the end of the tribulation where you can calculate seven years, but like a thief in the night. Uh, Revelation sixteen fifteen, Jesus said, like a thief in the night. First Thessalonians 5, 2 says, like a thief in the night. When you believe that Jesus could come imminently at the twinkling of an eye, if you believe that's true about the future, it's going to affect what you do in the present. And so that should motivate you to do three things in the present. Let me share with them real quickly. Practically, why does this matter to you? Why does it matter to you? What should it make you do? Well, let me tell you three things that, that end time prophecy... And the imminent return of Christ should motivate you to do three things. First of all, it should motivate you to declare your faith in Jesus Christ. 
if you know that he's coming, and if you know he, he's coming soon, and if you know that he could come at any minute, it should cause you to declare your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm not really sure if I believe, and well, maybe I'm going to, you know, I'm just kind of hoping that, well, you know, I'm trying to be good. And so we've got all these reasons why we've not, we've not declared our faith in Jesus Christ. Just a few minutes ago, Chris stood in that baptistry, And declared to the world, I have given my life to Jesus Christ. He has declared. I have declared. Many of you have declared your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus said, Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... Him will I deny before my Father in heaven. If you really believe Jesus is coming, you will declare your faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Number one. So here's my question. Have you, have you personally declared your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you believed in Him? And then have you declared that belief through believers' baptism. Every single believer in the book of Acts in the New Testament church believed and was baptized as a declaration of that except for the thief on the cross. And he died before a Baptist preacher could get him up there in the baptistry. Okay? Uh, that's the only reason. If you believe, you'll declare your faith. Secondly, if you re- you know, what we believe about the future will determine how we act now. So second thing, not only will you declare your faith, but but you will prepare your faith. And let me give you an example of that. Or let me give you a, a, a basis for that. Remember over in First Thessalonians chapter 4, I think it's verse 7 and 8, where, where Paul writes to Timothy, he said, don't believe in all them godly myths and all this stuff. He says, he says you know, uh, but train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value... But godliness or godly training has value both in this life and in the life to come. And so if we really believe that he's coming, and if we believe he's coming soon and it's imminent, it could happen at any moment, then then we would prepare our faith by training ourselves to be godly. Now, physical training is of some value. I, I don't, I mean, I'm doing a little physical training. Now it's, it's, you probably can't tell it, but I like to run a couple times a week or maybe ride my bike a little bit. Some of you work out. Some of you walk. We do all these different things because we, we, we just know, hey, because we want to live longer, because we want to do things, we just know we need to prepare now to have a better future. And so we prepare our faith. If you know he's coming, you ought to be ready. To be ready. We prepare our faith, we declare our faith, and then third, what we believe about the future should motivate us in the presence to share our faith. If we believe that the same Jesus that died on the cross. Is coming again. And if we believe that he is the only way to heaven. 
That's what he said. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Acts 4.12 says, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we will share our faith with the people we love and the people we care about. If we believe, we'll do that. But the curse of the modern church, we're not doing a whole lot of declaring, we're doing less preparing, and we're sure not doing much sharing. But y'all think about this. If we, if, if, if we believe what we say we believe, if what we believe about the future is true, if it's true that Jesus is coming again imminently, inevitably, If he's coming again, then that means that people who are here without him are going to be left. They're going to die and spend eternity in a devil's hell. People we know. People we care about. Why under heaven would we not share our faith? See, here's, a, here's why theology matters. Here's why end time theology matters. What you believe about the future determines how you behave in the present. You should declare your faith and allegiance to Christ. You should prepare yourself by training yourself to be godly. You should share your faith with those God brings into your life. If what we say we believe is true, we should share it with a world that is lost. Would you pray with me? I know we've covered a lot of ground. I know we've talked about some theology, and I know some of it's confusing, and I know some of your heads are spinning, and that's okay. But I also know that there's some sitting in the auditorium and you're just trying to figure out, is this really true? Is Jesus who he said he was? Because if Jesus is who he said he was, then he really is the only way to heaven. And if he's the only way to heaven, then you should declare your faith in him. You should place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And I wonder this morning, who of you, how many of you are here? Who've never given your life to Jesus Christ. How many of you have trusted him? There, the Bible says, the Bible says there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. So my question is, would you be willing to give your life to Jesus Christ? Would you, you, be willing to declare your faith in Christ? Would you be willing to follow the Lord in baptism, to be baptized, to say to the world, I've given your life. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Would you be willing today? He that's not with me, Jesus says against me. If you confess me before me, and I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Listen, what you believe about the future determines what you do in the present. And you should, if you've never done this, you should declare your faith in Christ. And you should be baptized as a public demonstration of your faith. Would you make a commitment to do that today? Would you?
If you're a believer, you should prepare yourself. You should prepare your faith. You should train yourself. We should be training ourselves to be godly. We should be memorizing his word. We should be putting it into practice. If we're a believer in Jesus Christ, we should be sharing our faith. This week, you and I should go out of here and we should talk to people in our circle about a soon coming king. Are you willing to do that? Church, are you willing to commit yourself today to seek to share your faith this week? Are you willing to do that? If you really believe he's coming again, if I really believe he's coming again, I should share my faith. I should look for opportunities to tell others about him. Now, Father, in these next moments, I pray that you'd convict our hearts. God, I pray that you convict my heart. God, I pray that you convict all of our hearts. For those that don't believe, I pray they would declare their faith in Jesus by professing him and being baptized. God, for those who, who've already been born again, I pray that they would prepare themselves by, by, by committing to train for godliness. For godliness. Because it has value in this life and the life to come. Father, for those who believe, I pray that we would commit today to share our faith. To tell somebody, somewhere, about the soon coming King of Kings. So God, I invite you to have your way in every person's heart, in every person's life. And when you do, we'll give you the honor and the glory for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what we're going to do. The choir's going to sing. Some of you need to come this morning and declare your faith in Christ. Maybe you've been saved, but you've never been baptized after your salvation. Or maybe you're here today, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You need to come today. Wyatt's here. I'll be here. We'll take God's word. We'll pray with you. We'll help you give your life to Jesus Christ.